Hello, and welcome to Conversations at the Washington Library, a podcast about early American history and the people who teach it. In this episode, Executive Director Dr. Kevin Butterfield sits down with Library Research Fellow Mark Tabert to discuss Freemasonry and George Washington's relationship with the organization. As a friendly reminder, there are still tickets remaining for the 2018 George Washington Symposium titled, A Sensible Woman Can Never Be Happy with a Fool, The Women of George Washington's World, on November 2nd and 3rd. More information about this event can be found on the webpage for this podcast. And now we join Dr. Butterfield and Mark Tabert in the studio. So let's start with a simple but pretty broad question. Why would a colonial American have wanted to become a Freemason? Uh, sure. So uh, Freemasonry was a, so it was a phenomenon that was growing in Scotland and England and Ireland uh, through the 1680s, 1690s, and more especially 17-teens and 20s. Uh, the first Grand Lodge of England forms in the 1720s, and then more especially the publication of uh, the first Constitutions of Freemasonry, published by James Anderson in 1723, basically gives... Uh, the means to spread the fraternity throughout the empire and uh, throughout Europe as well. Um, So it became um, a social phenomenon to join. So uh, men of good character, men seeking to rise in in society, men uh, in the colonial, all walks of life, uh, it was a thing to do. Um, And the fraternity early on attracted high aristocracy and and, um, even members of the royal family. So that just uh, attracted more and more men who might want to join, but on a very personal level or individual level, uh, especially somebody like Washington, who's on the edge of the frontier, who's in the wilderness in some sorts, uh, but he comes from a well-to-do family, he's already connected through the Fairfaxes and others, well, this is one more means for him to gain entrance into society. And when he joined when he was 19 years old, I believe at that time in his life, he, had a, he presumed at some point he would go to England. Um, and socialize in London and potentially be received in court. Uh, he certainly, at a young age, aspired to get a king's commission. And so all these things would be aspects of the reason why he would join, in the same way that if you were a merchant in Philadelphia or, or Boston or um, uh, a farmer or planter, you might join these organizations, the fraternity, because you're just entering into a transatlantic network of lodges and men who are Freemasons. Mm-hmm. So George Washington makes the decision to join, I want to say, 1752 or 3? 1752, yes. 1752. What happens then? Uh, he, does he walk into an a, a, a impressive edifice? No. Uh, tell, tell me about the, what, it, what it would be to, to be a, a, a Mason in 1750s uh, Virginia. Well, certainly, so there are only two or three lodges in the area. There's a lodge in Annapolis, Maryland. There's a lodge down Norfolk. Um, there's lodges in Philadelphia, of course, in Boston and elsewhere. Uh, but the lodge that's forming in Fredericksburg, we're not really sure when it formed. The first minutes are from uh, August of 1752, just a couple months before Washington's joined. Mm-hmm. But even those minute books that they have are a gathering of pages that they discovered that survived. There might have been other pages that were lost. Uh, they gathered them up and bound the pages into a book in the 1920s. So anyway, these were men uh, who, who formed that lodge in, in Fredericksburg. Fredericksburg was a commercial port. It was founded in large part by Scotsmen, especially Scots tobacco merchants, who were seeking to get uh, Virginia tobacco planters to ship their tobacco to Scotland rather than to Bath or to London. Um, and so the Scotsmen, who had been Freemasons, and Freemasonry is part of Scottish culture going back to the... Um, 
1600s, even to the 1500s, um, it was just a natural cultural thing that they would bring along with them, like a Presbyterian church or a whiskey distillery. So the Scotsmen in, in Fredericksburg who were forming that lodge, I mean, are simply trying to recreate Scotland there. Um, and it's a cultural phenomenon. People in the British Empire are doing it, so they created one. Um, and it's a means to bring a young planter like Washington in, in the same way that you might want a young professional to join a country club mm-hmm. or the Rotary Club. Uh, but it was really uh, a group of maybe 15 or 20 men uh, who were Freemasons, mostly from Scotland already, who were meeting in a tavern or an inn and having a club meeting, essentially. There was very little regalia. There wasn't any uh, um, aprons, Masonic aprons or other things. It was, again, a startup in the same way that hmm. any kind of other organization, think of a one-room schoolhouse out on the prairie in the 1750s, right? Same thing. So, yeah. Well, this is a great opportunity. You mentioned the aprons. Great opportunity for mm-hmm. us to take a step back and, and mm-hmm. talk about stonemasonry and Freemasonry. Sure. What, what is that connection? What, why is it that uh, this what's clearly a, a, a club and a tavern is uh, making use of these stonemason symbols? How does that happen? Okay. Well, there's, there is some um, controversy about that because we're not sure. And one of the things that makes studying Freemasonry so interesting but also a bit dangerous or, or confusing is that nobody knows exactly where it comes from. There's various uh, people who contest over whether or not it comes from England or Ireland or Scotland or even Germany or France. Um, the history is convoluted in many ways. But I'm a firm believer in the Scottish um, camp, which says that the stonemasons guilds in Scotland in the 13, 14, 1500s, um, as they lost authority and power, they began to accept uh, gentlemen enter their guilds for patronage and protections. Um, and the oldest example we know of that is Mary's Chapel Lodge in Edinburgh, 1599. They accepted an, a gentleman into the lodge, or, or what we would call a speckled mason. Mm-hmm. And from that point, more uh, gentlemen, non op- operative stonemasons, joined lodges, and again, it became more of a social club. The lodges, uh, the, the guild system, uh, If you were a craftsman, you entered as an apprentice, you passed to become a fellow of the craft, and then uh, when you achieved a certain uh, proficiency in your work, you became a master. So um, the three uh, degrees of stonemasonry were translated through a period of time. We're talking over 100 years for this transformation to happen Hmm. um, into what we would call Freemasonry. So Freemasonry eventually developed three degrees of initiation, entered apprentice, fellow craft, and master mason. Um, the fraternity of Freemasonry took the tools and symbols of stonemasonry to provide to create a fraternity that was open to all good men, regardless of their political point of view, religion, um, or class. And this was extremely important in the time of the religious uh, wars in Europe. Uh, you remember the Glorious Revolution in 1688, uh, the end of the Stuarts, the rise of the Hanover. Um, uh, dynasty. So there was, of course, a great um, tribulation in England and Scotland during that time period, and Freemasonry became an avenue where men could put aside all those partisan differences uh, difference and, bec- and come together as brothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, the stonemasons' tools then became symbols of universal concepts without being sectarian. So the level would teach equality, uh, the plumb, uh, rectitude of life, the, c- the compasses, moderation. Um, and uh, 
the the apron was uh, used by stonemasons. The, the apron became the badge of the mason and identified him as such. And the apron is an emblem of innocence, of purity, of good conduct. That's great. Um, the, the, uh, the, the mysteries within masonry, uh, I, I, I gather that actually they're, they're far more exposed from a far earlier date than people may realize. Tell me a little bit about that. How, how would someone who never became a Mason have learned about what's going on behind closed doors in the 18th century? Well, uh, specifically for George Washington, we know that the first Masonic book published in the, in the colonies was Benjamin Franklin's reprint of Anderson's Constitution in 1733. Mm-hmm. And, and Washington sent, uh, I mean, Franklin sent copies of that book to Boston, where his family's from, and also down to the Carolinas for sale. Uh, we also know that there were Masonic orations and sermons being published in the colonies in the 1740s, 50s, including two in Annapolis in 1751. Um, but as far as the actual private work, the secret work of Freemasonry, the rituals, yeah. those were being exposed um, in, the, in the 1720s in newspapers, and then there were several books or pamphlets published in the 1720s and 30s that were by Freemasons or lapsed Freemasons who actually went through and gave you everything. And they were Hmm. very, very prominent by the 1750s. So, for example, we don't know exactly what ritual Washington received when he joined in 1752, but there were exposures of those rituals in 1760 that are very, very close. Interesting. Um, But the the deeper um, idea behind Freemasonry is... Freemasonry has been characterized since the 1700s as a peculiar system of morality uh, conveyed through allegory and illustrated through symbols. Hmm. So the morality is based on brotherly love, relief, truth, uh, cardinal virtues of temperance, fortitude, prudence, and justice. Um, And the allegory, which would come from stonemasonry, is the building of King Solomon's temple as articulated in the Book of Kings and Chronicles. So as Solomon gathered... Uh, the craftsmen from the Holy Lands to build the temple to God in Jerusalem, Freemasonry uses that allegory to, to, to build an f- a international or a fellowship or a brotherhood. What Freemasonry in the 20th century call the brotherhood of man underneath the fatherhood of God. And then this, the, the, um, the symbols are the stonemason symbols that teach that morality. Interesting. And so the, you mentioned uh, Solomon's Temple. I, I I recall reading that that in the 17th and 18th century, there was a lot of interest even on the part of people like Sir Isaac Newton into what the temple was about and what we know about it historically and what we might be able to learn from it, this sort of ancient wisdom. Should you talk a little bit about that, the connection between masonry and the search for ancient knowledge? Maybe, um, maybe flush that out for us a bit? Sure. So um, Isaac Newton spent a, a better part of the end of his life doing research on ancient chronologies of the kingdoms that is tracing all the patriarchs and the various kings of the tribes of uh, the kingdom of Judah and Israel. And, um, and then when we think about um, the Temple of Solomon, well, Solomon was given the wisdom and, and he was commanded by God, allowed to build the temple. So this is God's architecture, not to be uh, profane about it, but the building was built according to the Lord's specifications. So, so why wouldn't you want to? So from you that? would definitely want to understand what's behind that, yeah. since it's the perfect building to house um, the Lord. So, uh, so, and then I think there's also a presumption under most people, most of the people living during the Enlightenment, or who call themselves natural philosophers, that 
the information, the knowledge that they were, re- were discovering were actually rediscovering, and that mm. the ancients, the Romans, the Greeks, the Israelites, the Egyptians, knew this information and knowledge, and it was lost through the, what we would some would call the Dark Ages. Mm-hmm. So Newton and others are trying to discern what the ancients knew, and the best place to start, of course, is the Holy Word of God. Um, and uh, since the creation of these great monuments of antiquity, which many people couldn't figure out how the ancient Romans built the Pantheon or the Acropolis and, and by the Greeks or others, wonders of the world, Discovering how to build that architecture is based on geometry, and geometry is is the language of stonemasonry, is the language of, of sure. architecture, and geometry becomes sacred geometry through the study of Euclid, Pythagoras, and other ancients. So there's a lot of interest by um, the Enlightenment scholars, Enlightenment um, um, scientists, the people who founded the Royal Society in London mm. was interested in a lot of this aspect. Now that that was a fad by the 1750s, 1770s. Uh, science had progressed through that and into different levels of understanding. But experimental science. Experimental science, yeah. yeah. But but when you're starting with nothing, and I'm not, I don't want to say that be that severe, but when you're trying to gather up the knowledge that you can in the 1600s and the 1700s, you're going to, of course, rely on, uh, you're going to first look in the Bible because up until 150 years ago, the Bible was largely considered to be the true history of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's let's move forward a bit in time now. Uh, Washington becomes a Mason in the 1750s, uh, but when we when we get to the revolutionary moments, uh, there's obviously a uh, a popular uh, perception of the revolutionaries as perhaps being every darn one of them Freemasons, that there's some sort of Masonic imagery that underlay um, everything that we can uh, learn about 1776 and the founding. Obviously, those are are, are massive uh, misperceptions. But talk to me a little bit about the reality of the revolutionary generation and Freemasonry, um, particularly uh, this idea that, that a, a good number of the founders were Masons. Just tell, tell us about that. Right. So uh, it, is, it is ridiculous to think that Freemasonry um, had a role in um, the American Revolution. Individual Freemasons, yes, and this is always true. So um, we always have to delineate between the institution and the individual. So mm-hmm. uh, you could argue that um, uh, you could argue that the that any particular government is is good or bad, but there are good and bad politicians, right? So it's mm-hmm. the same thing. Um, you could argue that a corporation is good, but there are bad. But there are certainly better or worse executives in corporations. Mm-hmm. So Freemasonry. Um, there are many men who were Freemasons during the War for Independence, such as Benjamin Franklin and uh, and George Washington. But for every significant one, there was one that wasn't. Thomas Jefferson wasn't a Freemason. Alexander Hamilton wasn't. Um, and even men, when you think that they were Freemasons, such as Major General Henry Knox. There's no record of him being a Freemason until well after the Revolution. Hmm. So uh, you have to, like anything else, you have to get down to the, the facts. And just because somebody's listed as a Freemason doesn't mean that they meant anything to them. And that's part of the work I'm doing. Um, 
So Freemasonry, but, but here's the conspiracy side of that, if it is. So the men who supported Freemasonry, the men who tended to join Freemasonry in Washington's generation, were men who believed in self-determination, who believed in republic virtues, who believed in uh, peaceable assembly of people, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, very radical ideas, especially in continental Europe. There's mm -hmm. a, there are many reasons why the Roman Catholic Church and kings and emperors went after Freemasons in places like France and Bavaria and Italy and Spain because they directly challenged the authority of the church and of the crown. Um, so there is a revolutionary aspect to Freemasonry because, yeah, it actually upholds human dignity and the human rights. Um, but, but here's the difference. And this is true then as it is today. If men or women want to conspire against a power, they just conspire and do that. They don't need to have some sort of silly organization to hide behind, mm -hmm. right? So these these men came out, the revolutionaries came out as revolutionaries, right? Mm -hmm. They made declarations of independence. They met in congresses. They did all these things. They were the sons of liberty. The sons of liberty. So, and even the Boston Tea Party, which... Um, you know, suppose which some of the members of the Boston Tea Party were members of the Lodge of St. Andrews in Boston uh, that met at the Green Dragon Tavern, but they, they didn't show up and dress as Freemasons when they threw tea in the harbor. They dressed mm -hmm. up as, as American Indians. Mm -hmm. If they wanted to do that, they would have done it. Again, it's uh, there's no reason to make it complicated. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> just, yeah. Just to satisfy some sort of melodramatic, uh, romantic whim. You know, it's juvenile to think that adult men would do that. So, so how did we get there? How did we get to this popular misperception of, of some sort of uh, connection between Masonry and, and the Revolution? Well, so th some of that is Masonic pride. Um, Freemasons like to talk about their founding fathers, and I work at the George Washington Masonic National Memorial. Um, and so it's, you know, one man's uh, traitor is another man's patriot, I think Ronald mm -hmm. Reagan said that. So w since since the revolution was successful and we gained our independence, these were all the pantheon of our heroes. Yeah. If we had lost, they would all have been traitors. And so... Uh, so, the, but but more especially, the French Revolution is a, is the a real issue here because okay. because that? what happened? The French Revolution, of course, went from uh, a relatively peaceful kingdom in 1788 to the storm in the Bastille in 1789, and by 1792, within three or four years, you're getting into the reign of terror, where thousands of people are being executed by mm -hmm. Robespierre and other people, the Committee for Public Safety, mm -hmm. um, and then the rise of Napoleon and the destruction of the Catholic Church in France, the destruction of monasteries, the whole-scale slaughter of people, so uh, which horrifies Europe and still horrifies people today. Um, there were several books written, and many people could f believe that Freemasons were behind it. There's a very famous book by a Scotsman named John Robinson called The Proof of Conspiracies, which was published in 1797, hmm. which and others, which lay all these shocking revolutionary things at the feet of the shadowy organization called the Illuminati, hmm. which infiltrated Freemasonry and attempted to infiltrate Freemasonry in the United States as well. And so, uh, in the end of so uh, the best summation of all that revolutionary paranoid idea, I think, comes from a, um, the novelist Umberto Eco, who wrote in one of his books, Full Cult Pendulum, um, in the absence of a supreme being that be that you believe is governing the universe and has a plan, in the absence of belief of that, when something weird and strange happens, you have um, human beings chalk it up to some sort of conspiracy, mm -hmm. right? So when anything strange happens, like the French Revolution or the Russian Revolution or 
the Kennedy assassination right. or the 1929 stock market crash or you name it. Sure. we got to find a conspiracy. Wow. And the conspiracy is usually the Illuminati or the freebies. <laughs> yeah, or both. Right, right. The, um, this is uh, fascinating stuff, and, and since you mentioned the Illuminati, I, I suppose it's important that we that we briefly discuss that the, the, it was a real organization yes, at yes, one point. Yes, uh, so, uh, in a thumbnail, how would you describe uh, the, well, the rise I'm, and fall? I'm not I'm not real familiar with the Illuminati itself, but it was formed in Bavaria in seventeen in the mid 1770s. Uh, there was uh, one or two people well known behind it. They had their own rituals that have been recently published, and other people have done research. And, and it was, the, Bavaria was a Catholic kingdom, mm. so the, 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 um, the church and the state of Bavaria crushed this organization. But they were... By the 1780s. By 1776, oh. it was crushed. So, uh, but again, this idea of self-determination, enlightenment, men organizing together. One of the complaints about, uh, by the Catholic church, and again, this is a bizarre concept to us, and bizarre to Catholics today, I would imagine, which is that the Roman Catholic Church despised Freemasonry in the 1730s because men were getting together in private and electing their own leaders. Mm-hmm. Well, you can't do that in an aristocracy. Sure, right. <laughs> it's an antithesis of an aristocracy. It's subversive just on its face. Right, yeah. right. And, and what, what lessons would that teach to people? Or, or that they were for a, you know an open public school system where the Roman Catholics had been um, providing all the education mm-hmm. for hundreds of years through their monastic system and elsewhere. So, so while while we're uh, uh, still in the revolutionary moment, um, uh, I, I want to ask you a little bit about uh, another prominent Mason at the time, uh, a man named Prince Hall. Tell me yeah. about that story. How does he factor into the to the story of Freemasonry and its expansion to include new people? Right. So, um, and there's been some a lot of work on this. So, and I'm not necessarily up to date with all the scholarship, but there was a man named Prince Hall who was a free African who lived in. Boston in the 1770s, 1780s. I think he died in 1808. He's buried in the North um, North North Burial Grounds, not too far from the Old North Church. Um, and the story is that Prince Hall, uh, Mr. Prince Hall, and 13 other Free Africans um, were initiated um, into a Masonic lodge uh, under the within an Irish military regiment, and that that military lodge had a warrant or a charter from. The Grand Lodge of Ireland, I believe. So these men were made Freemasons, uh, sort of on the sly, not really officially. But the men organized themselves; these three Africans organized themselves into a lodge, and they eventually um, received a charter from the Grand Lodge of England in 1787, and they were chartered as African Lodge 459, the 459th Lodge on the English rules. Hmm. Um, and that lodge existed for several years, and from that lodge. Uh, all recognized African African American Freemasonry uh, grows out of. Now there were lodges in Philadelphia under uh, Bishop Allen, uh, um, Bishop Allen, um, but there and there were other Free Africans in the United States who were made Masons. But more especially, there were um, men of African descent who were Freemasons before Prince Hall in Europe and in the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. But Prince Hall is recognized as the first Amer- African American. To where today we have Prince Hall Lodges. Yeah. So Freemasonry um, divided along racial lines, um, and so there was ancient accepted or free and accepted Masonry, which is predominantly white, 
and Prince Al Philly, which is predominantly black. In the last 30 years, they've started to recognize each other. Um, so the Grand Lodge of Massachusetts recognized the Prince Al Grand Lodge of Massachusetts, um, et cetera, through most of the states. Hmm. There's a few holdouts. Um, and there's a whole range of reasons why um, Grand Lodges don't recognize each other. Um, and there's no desire to unify. The Prince Hall Freemasons have their own culture and history and traditions, and they have no desire to merge within a predominantly white organization and vice versa. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it's a fraternity. Right, right. Well, let's, let's, let's talk about why you're here at Mount Vernon. Uh, there's, there's a project that you're uh, beginning that, that seems uh, to me as if it's going to be the last word on Washington and Freemasonry. But as I recall you uh, saying uh, a few weeks ago, uh, people have made that claim before. <laughs> yes. Uh, but yeah. tell me about what you're doing here. So um, as, as the director of collections and the curator at the George Washington Masonic Memorial, um, one of my responsibilities is to start really understanding every piece of information we have that affirms Washington's membership in or his relationship to Freemasonry. So I undertook this project about three years ago and started creating a database and just going through all the primary sources and going online searches and just gathering up all known records, minutes, minute books, uh, artifacts that document that. Um, that document any connection between Washington, George Washington right, and Freemasonry. Right, okay. right. and, and um, I have a database of somewhere of close to 180 things, okay. of which, but a lot of those are fair copies or duplicates or letter book copies of letters. So it's really 60, there's about 64 events, Masonic events in Washington's life from him receiving the three degrees of Freemasonry in 1752-53 to receiving a letter from this fellow or responding to the letter from that or the cornerstone ceremony of the U.S. Capitol or the when he was inaugurated the President of the United States in a Bible borrowed from a Masonic Lodge or mm-hmm. his funeral, that sort of stuff. So um, so what the book is working on and my fellowship is, has really greatly helped me is I'm now going to be able to, to put all those activities into context of Washington's life. So when Washington received a letter from the Grand Lodge of Pennsylvania in 1796, what was going on? Well, he was he was about, he's waiting to get out of office because he was retiring, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, putting those things into context will then understand why the Freemasons were writing back and forth or why he was responding. And some of these events uh, that you'll be working on uh, are are substantial ones, uh, that is, really powerful, iconic moments in American history. You mentioned the cornerstone ceremony. Right. So in 1793, we know he participates in, in the laying of the cornerstone for the Capitol building. Uh, how were Freemasons involved in that ceremony? What, what was the story? Right. So as as the commission was organizing that ceremony, the Freemasons stepped forward and participated in it. Um, there were, of course, other activities around that. They had a nice barbecue afterwards, and there were other people in the parade. The military was there. Um, the stonemasons themselves and other civic organizations around that area. But the Freemasons were acting as a civic religion, was providing some sort of uh, a religious feeling without delineating a denomination or mm-hmm. creed, mm-hmm. providing a ceremony to to bless, to, to put the cornerstone uh, plum level and square and then bless it with corn, wine, and oil, which signifies health, peace, and plenty. To sort mm-hmm. of bring a blessing to the building for the people, right. and he does this in in a, in a ceremony uh, in front of hundreds of, of people, hundreds, hundreds of people. Wow. And, and that's not the first cornerstone ceremony. I mean, Freemasons have been doing similar cornerstone ceremonies in the United States prior to Washington and 
um, in England, in Scotland. And they would go on to do that. Yeah, and continue. To this day. To this day, absolutely. Um, if that's a big event, uh, what's 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 one of the small things that you've discovered about a connection between George Washington and, and the Masonic fraternity? Uh, well, one of the things that I think is important um, is when Washington, 1790, Washington goes to Rhode Island to welcome Rhode Island as a state. This oh, the finally. State. They held out. Yeah. So he, he receives a, an address from the Jewish uh, synagogue there in Newport, which is the oldest true synagogue. Mm-hmm. And his response to the Jewish congregation is very famous because it's, it's an affirmation that all people of good faith, of faith, are welcome in the United States. And the Jewish population is as welcome and as part of being American as anybody else, as any Protestant or Catholic mm-hmm. is. But the man who handed him that address from the from the synagogue was also a brother of King David's Lodge, and King David's Lodge gave Washington a Masonic address, um, which uh, which Washington received and replied to. Hmm. Um, and Washington at the same time, at the same time, on the same day. So, the same man, uh, Moses Sexus, gave two addresses to Washington: one as a member of the congregation, one as a member of his lodge. Washington's reply. Uh, to the to King David's Lodge um, is one of the most famous where he sums up, he says, the grand object of Freemasonry is the happiness of the human race. Hmm. Right. So. Hmm. Wow. So and it, it really is connected to this other iconic letter, this iconic uh, statement of Washington on religious right. freedom. That's right. It's fascinating. Um, tell me about uh, where you see the project going, uh, what you have left to do, and, and what's going to happen to it when you're done. Right. So uh, we have the introduction completed, and it was written uh, with prof- uh, Dr. Edward Lingle. Uh, the preface is written, which is the historiography of how we know Washington was a Freemason and the various interpretations through the anti-Masonic period and through the 20th century. Um, and my time here, my month here at Mount Vernon, the fellowship I've written, uh, captions and research 20 of those 60 odd mm-hmm. activities of Washington Life. So I have another 40 to go. So uh, the good Lord willing, I'll be done with the manuscript by the end of the end of the year. And then the University of Virginia Press will publish the book. And the book will contain about 75 images of all the letters and artifacts along with the transcriptions and the annotations and all that stuff. So the book, uh, another 18 months before it uh, comes to fruition. That's outstanding. Well, I'm looking forward to it. This is exciting stuff. Uh, and thank you so much for sitting down with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations at the Washington Library. Be sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.